the Design and Transition podcast, a bilingual audio tapestry where we weave interviews, commentaries, and artistic explorations in Spanish and English. We converse about designing for systems-level change towards more sustainable and equitable futures, as well as the transitions design is taking in theory and practice. Today's conversation is in English. We will now direct our Spanish-speaking listeners to the end of the episode for the commentary in Spanish. La conversación de hoy es en inglés. Te invitamos a escuchar nuestra discusión en español acerca de esta al final del episodio. Welcome everyone to Design in Transition, Diseño en Transición. We're here today with Reese Jones, professor and chair of the Department of Geography and Environment at the University of Hawaii, editor-in-chief of the journal Geopolitics, author of Border Walls, Security and the War on Terror in the United States, India and Israel, and Violent Borders, Refugees and the Rights to Move. He's the author of over two dozen journal articles and four edited books, and he is recently awarded the 2021 Guggenheim Fellowship. Two forthcoming books are White Borders, The History of Race and Immigration in the United States from Chinese Exclusion to the Border Wall out in September, around the time of the this podcast is coming out, in fact, uh, can be pre-ordered uh, prior if anyone gets uh, if this gets released prior. Um, Nobody is Protected is another uh, forthcoming book. How the Border Wall Becomes the Most Dangerous Police Force in the United States out next summer in 2022. Thank you, Reese, for being here today. I think before we get into the interview, I wanted to um, invite in my colleague, Hilary Carey, who's also a doctoral researcher at the um, School of Transition Design at Carnegie Mellon. Um, and Hillary, this is our first time joining us on a podcast, so I wanted to give you a moment to introduce yourself and your work. Um, and I'll do the same, and then we'll, we'll really look forward to jumping into the interview with Reese. Thanks, Erica. It is so nice to be here. I am so glad that you guys do this podcast and that I could be a part of it today. Um, so my research is looking at racism and anti-racist efforts and how the practice of imagining long-term futures could help people embrace more radical and less incremental approaches to racial justice. I'm particularly interested in shifting the awareness and ideologies of people who sit on the edge of understanding racism. So I'm in my second year of the transition design program right now. So I'm still in the middle of figuring this all out. Right there with you, Hillary. Um, yeah, I'm also in my second year. My name is Erica Dorn. I'm a, one of the co-founders and hosts of Design Transition, Design Transition. Um, And my research is focused on uh, the primacy of motion, the idea that all humans are in some form in motion, and yet we've materialized and designed a world of fixicity. I'm particularly interested in, in the suburbs as the context that I'm investigating. And there's a episode coming out right after this about my work, so I'll leave it at that. So with that, um, really, really honored to have you here, Reese. Um, your work is really prolific and is is getting into all the territories I think that both Hillary and I are really eager to learn more about and bring into to action. So with that, I'd like to hand it over to you and um, hear more about how you come into this work. Yeah, thanks, Erica and, and Hillary for having me on. I'm really excited to, to tell you about my work and to discuss uh, uh, White Borders, which comes out in September. My first book looked at border walls and thought about why countries around the world were putting up these walls on borders. 
that book came out in 2012. Um, and it was kind of driven by the question of why in, in an era where, you know, after the fall of the Berlin Wall and this era of globalization, when we were supposed to be having all of these connections across space, there were so many countries putting up walls. Um, three, three quarters of the walls that exist in the world were built in the last 20 years. So then after I wrote that book, I, I turned to thinking about migrant deaths um, because in the early 2010s, there was this really dramatic uptick in the number of people dying at borders. Um, and so that's what I looked at in, in the book, Violent Borders. And that book came out in 2016, um, about uh, three weeks before the election of Donald Trump. Um, and so as that book was in the process of coming out, I watched the 2016 election, which brought a lot of these issues about border walls, about migration, and turned them into these, um, these campaign slogans and really framed them in a very racialized way. Um, and so for my, my third book, which is White Borders, um, I wanted to look at the history of that, to think about how privileges around race were, um, were, uh, were, were kind of formulated through immigration policy and how um, immigration became this kind of touchstone issue for racial debates in the United States. Wow, I can see the the uh, how this has unfolded, and and really excited to later in this interview talk about the the relevance of your current book that's coming out. So, Reese, your current book is titled "White Borders: The History of Race and Immigration in the United States from Chinese Exclusion to the Border Wall," and you're demonstrating that borders and immigration are inherently tied to our national identity, and our na national identity is not what we pretend that it is. So, you write, immigration laws are central, but often unrecognized part of the white supremacist vision of the United States as a white country. I personally was surprised by how overtly race and therefore racism show up in our law and policy. Has the language changed over time or do we remain fairly overt about this? When I started working on the book, I didn't know exactly what to expect when I went back to look at these earlier immigration laws and citizenship laws that, that go along with that nationalization laws. Um, and so I was surprised that it was as overt as it is in many places. I think the first thing that we should emphasize is that the United States didn't have any federal national immigration laws until the 1870s. So for over 100 years, there were no national rules about who could immigrate to the United States. A few individual states like New York and Massachusetts had their own um, state level laws. But in 1849, the Supreme Court ruled that those were unconstitutional. So, um, so the first federal immigration laws weren't until the 1870s. However, um, from the, the U.S.'s first naturalization law, um, the law limited citizenship to free white persons. Um, so anyone was free to enter the United States, but in order to be nationalized, naturalized and become a citizen, um, you had to be white. And that remained in uh, the immigration law, I mean, in the naturalization law, a lot later than most people would normally have expected. Um, that wasn't actually removed until 1952 um, from U.S. Uh, naturalization laws. So the laws have changed, and they are not as overtly racist as they were in the past. Um, but the one of the main arguments of the book is that the reason that the United States even has immigration laws was to protect an idea of a white country. 
the, the first laws in the 1870s were fundamentally about keeping non-white people out of the United States. Yeah, that's, that's a striking argument. Is citizenship the main leverage point for keeping the country white or keeping it that way? Or does it show up, I think about like owning property or other ways, like what are the other tools you see to maintain this sort of idea of a white country? Yeah, um, I think that, that that sort of ideal is maintained through a whole series of laws. I mean, we see it in things like redlining, policing in the U.S. that we're having debates about right now. Um, but my area of expertise is certainly the immigration rules. Um, and what we see is that as soon as non-white immigrant groups start to show up in the United States and start to migrate um, to the country, it's at that moment that the idea of having rules about who can enter the country start to come into play. My previous book, Violent Borders, came out in 2016, and it talks about the ways that movement restrictions are used to protect privileges in a particular country. Um, and in that book, I focus on economic privileges and think about how um, wealth is protected through restrictions on immigration um, for, for um, particular countries. Um, and it, it's shockingly explicit. Um, the, um, the debates in the 1880s about Chinese exclusion are very much uh, about the idea that the Chinese are going to replace white people in the United States um, and that that immigration has to be stopped before that can happen. I think we are having more debates about it. I think that the, the white nationalism that has arisen over the last decade and become a much more um, explicit and vocal part of the national debate in the United States, um, certainly Donald Trump played a role in that, but there's a much longer history to it. He's, he's really more of a, a vessel that kind of expressed this white nationalism that had been had been there for decades, um, but it's become a much more explicit thing that people feel comfortable saying in, in public venues. It wasn't as common over the last, say, 50 years for prominent people to say that publicly, right? There was certainly in the, the post-civil rights era um, after the, the 1960s, I think those views remained, but they were often hidden. And I feel like in the last few years, it's become much more explicit again. And so I think that's important because we're discussing these things that have been there the whole time. Um, and it's brought it to a head where we're having these debates about what they mean. There is progress in it becoming more public and more visible so that it has to be addressed. I, I think so. I, I, I would like to think so, maybe is, is what I should say. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think uh, we're certainly at a precarious moment because the people who are espousing a white nationalist point of view certainly feel under threat. And as we saw with the riot at the Capitol, as we see with the public protests around the last election, um, as we saw with marches like the one in Charlottesville, um, that, that there is a lot more militancy to that particular perspective. And I think that over the next decade, we're going to see it, that, that we're going to have a conflict about this. And what that conflict looks like, I, I can't predict, but it's certainly, it's going to be the central debate, I would say, um, over the next few years. In some ways, the white nationalist position that the United States has always been a white country, um, that it was founded by white people, and that it was meant to be a white country, 
is a fairly accurate description of the first few centuries of the United States, right? It's really um, since the 1960s that there has been some challenge to that and some effort to try to live up to the founding documents of the country that talk in much more universalist terms um, rather than the actions of those, those founders. When the U.S. has made progress, because in most ways we are not, we don't restrict immigration to only white people, even though maybe there are attempts at that in different ways. But when progress has been made, when it has expanded, who has led those efforts and what has been the argument to not be so exclusionary? Yeah, so the the big change in immigration policy happened in 1965 as part of the civil rights movement. Um, and it was at that time that the Hart Seller Immigration Act passed, um, which was meant to undo the racist national origins quotas, which had been in place since 1924. So in 1965, they changed that. Um, so Lyndon Johnson was the president. The Kennedy brothers were the ones who pushed the, the act through the Senate. Um, but if you look at the debates at the time, um, they were arguing that essentially they wanted to remove the ostensibly racist, the explicitly racist language that was there in the, the previous immigration law, partly because the, the 19, 1964 Civil Rights Act had said that you can't discriminate based on national origin, um, whereas the immigration law explicitly discriminated based on national origin. So they're trying to fix that problem. Um, but at the time, they argued that it wasn't a significant change, that the um, their their quotes from Ted Kennedy saying that our, our countries won't our our cities won't be flooded with immigrants the the ethnic character of the country is not going to change um, and at the time they thought that they had enacted rules that would would do that they would continue to have the same sort of people coming to the U S so the idea was that the country in 1965 was vast majority white 80 some percent white non Hispanic population. And the idea was that since the majority of people were white in 1965, the people applying for immigration visas to bring their family members would match the population that existed. But that's turned out to not be the case, that um, those sort of family reunification visas have been used by a lot of newer immigrants who are coming from the Americas um, and more recently coming from Asia. Um, and so the 1965 Act has changed the, the dynamic of immigrants to the United States, which is why it's such a target for white supremacists today and, and is the thing that the white nationalists are perhaps most angry about. As I worked on it for this, for my book, For White Borders, um, I learned about um, this guy named John Tanton, um, who people have called him perhaps the most influential person that no one has heard of. But in the, in the 1970s, uh, John Tanton, who was an ophthalmologist in upstate New York, uh, decided that immigration was a significant threat to the environment of the United States. And so um, in the 1970s, he was active in the environmental movement, the Sierra Club and a group called Zero Population Growth. Um, but in 1979, he decided those groups weren't taking immigration seriously enough, and he decided to found his own groups. In order to do so, he built these connections with a lot of very wealthy people um, in the 70s and 80s in order to fund um, a new kind of anti-immigrant push to essentially change that 1965 immigration law and to impose much more strict limits in the United States about who could enter the country. 
all of Canton's groups are today considered um, hate groups by the Southern Poverty Law Center. They've all been declared um, hate groups, but nevertheless, over a dozen people who used to work for these anti-immigrant hate groups um, were hired by the Trump administration to work in the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Justice, to enact these restrictions on immigration. And who is fighting against that? Like, who are the key players that make progress on the other side? Yeah, I mean, I think that the other side is not as well organized as it could be. Um, You know, I mean, there are, of course, many different groups that focus on immigrant rights in the United States. But I feel like many of those groups are focused more narrowly on the experience of people who are already in the U.S. And I feel like those groups haven't focused as much on the larger question of what underlies immigration rules in the first place. So one of the things that I'm trying to, to do in my book is to really have us question the entire idea that we have these rules about immigration. Erica, that seems like a good transition to your area of research and trying to problematize this whole idea of citizenship and borders. Yeah, thanks, Reese. And yeah, Hilary, this was really meaty. One thing I think would be helpful also for our listeners, and this might harken, go back to some of your previous work, is... um, So somehow we live in a world now, and I guess kind of we can take a more global perspective for a moment, um, but we live in a world of borders. We somehow have materialized a world of of borders, yet we are on the move more than ever before. More people are prepared to migrate than ever in human history. Can you help unpack the central argument for more open borders? Is it open borders that you're calling for? And is that a global, something you would like to see globally? Yeah, I think the first thing that in the work that I do, I try to always have a longer historical frame because I feel like we as humans often get very stuck in the present and in the conditions that we find ourselves in, which is a state system that has borders and has immigration rules. And we think of that as something that's always existed. And so um, in my work, I try to, to provide some of that historical frame so that we can question what's happening now and think about what that future could look like. And so I think one thing to emphasize is that we have not always lived in states, right? The idea of countries with territories on maps and borders is a really new idea. Um, There was a period where humans were nowhere on earth, right? We evolved at some point and then we've migrated over that entire space of this planet, right? So the history of humanity is a history of migration. As states start to emerge, they were very much about controlling labor in order to produce privileges for some people at the expense of others. Um, So all early states are built on slavery. And I think that that's sort of a system of trapped labor, of serfdom, of slavery, um, is the foundations of the, the states that we currently have. In that period, late 1700s through mid 1900s, Um, we see a real transition where many of those kind of slavery-based, top-down, monarchy-type states get replaced with modern states, which are built on some notion of democracy, some notion of uh, government for the people. And as that transition happens, that idea of slavery starts to end. We see these mass movements of people after that. People from other parts of the world start to have a similar sort of movement where they're the the restrictions of slavery and then of colonialism start to come off um, and people start to move to different sorts of places, it's in that era that we see the imposition of immigration restrictions, passports, 
um, and more recently, walls on, on borders. Is there, on the international stage, a form of international reparations? Because it seems like the only way to move forward past beyond the nation state, beyond borders, has everything to do with a form of reparations. That because so many of the factors that influence migration have to do with kind of the push factors at the source of people needing to leave, flee their own countries. Um, so from your point of view, um, what is, how do you see any way forward in our lifetimes? Yeah, so I think that the, the argument of white borders is that if you think about why we have immigration restrictions in the U.S., it's because of racial exclusion. All of the laws that have been put in place have been meant to protect an idea of a white country. And so if that's the main reason that we have those laws, I would argue that we should question that and that we should think about reasons to dismantle them. Um, the, the idea that immigrants somehow are a negative drag on the countries that receive them um, is false. It's been proven false over and over and over again um, by scholars who've looked into the data on that. In your research, have you found anything that helps to address the source causes of migration? Yeah, I guess for me, I tend to try to avoid labeling some types of movement as legitimate and other types as illegitimate. Um, you know, the current refugee system, which is better than nothing for sure, um, certainly privileges particular types of movement. It's legitimate to move for political persecution, um, whereas not legitimate to move if you're living in poverty or for environmental degradation and things like that. Great. So to conclude with where you're at now and where you want us to be at now, um, two questions. You're a Guggenheim Fellow, so could you tell us more about what you want to do with that work? And then if this community is a group of people who are looking to make good, positive change in the world, what would you want us to add to our research? Yeah, so for the Guggenheim Fellowship, I am finishing up an, another book. Um, I have uh, a book called Nobody is Protected, um, How the Border Patrol Became the Most Dangerous Police Force in the U.S., um, which will be out in 2022. Um, and so that book looks at the history of the Border Patrol specifically and thinks about their the, their legal justification to enforce immigration rules in the U.S., um, so they were founded in 1924, two days after those national origin quotas were put in place. So they were started as a racial police force to enforce the racial rules about who could enter the United States. Um, and in the book, I argue that that racialized policing has continued at that agency through the present day. Um, but what's unique and interesting about the Border Patrol is that their authorization gives them the authority to operate in a vast area of the United States. So um, they're not right at the borderline. Um, they are instead um, able to operate 100 miles from borders and coastlines. Um, so that means two thirds of the United States population lives in the border zone. Um, for example, here in Hawaii, the entire state is the border zone. Um, so nine of the 10 largest cities are in the border zone. And the Border Patrol has a number of special rules that they were given in the 1920s, but they were um, considered in the 1970s by the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court approved almost all of them. Um, so they have a much lower standard 
um, to stop vehicles in the United States. Um, they just need to have more than one fact of articulable suspicion to stop a car. And the, the Supreme Court ruled that race can be one of those facts. So um, they're allowed to do racial profiling. The Border Patrol can also set up checkpoints anywhere in that 100-mile zone to check documents for immigration status. Um, so they do that throughout the border zone um, on the southern border already, but those also um, have increasingly been put in place on the northern border. Um, they could put those in the middle of New York City. They have the right to do that. I think it was interesting to note that um, your focus is really on unpacking this deep history and then kind of serving it up for people like us who might be able to really do something with it. Anything on any notes on that? Like, what do you want to see done? And I think we've maybe named this, but feel free to leave us with any kind of final thoughts that maybe we didn't connect to that may interest you um, or, or just, you know, that allow our design audience to take action in some form. Yeah, I think for all of these issues, Issues. There's both the immediate time frame and then the much longer term time frame. I mean, for me, the longer term time frame, I'd like to see a world where there was freedom of movement and people could move wherever they want to on the face of the earth. Um, but I also am a pragmatist and know that that's, uh, that's not going to happen tomorrow. Right. So um, I think there are also other things that we can talk about to start to improve the situation for people. Similarly, I'm certainly in favor of abolishing um, groups like ICE. Right. I mean, who ICE does the internal policing um, and for for immigration violations. And, you know, I think that they have a, a very negative impact on um, on our country. So that's certainly another thing that could be could be is I think is a reasonable and shorter term goal that moves us towards envisioning this future. We've just heard from Reese Jones, and we'll now connect to an interview that myself, Erica Dorn, and Sofia Bash Gomez did with Yason Apostolopoulos. He's a rescuer with the humanitarian organization Mediterranea. He rescues refugees fleeing Libya by sea to Europe and recounts the atrocities happening along the southern border of Europe. Through his sense of urgency that he experiences in his direct action work, he leads us towards ideas about design for policy change and more specific actions that can uproot xenophobia. Could you describe for our listeners what it is you do for your work and what brings you to doing that kind of work? I started doing rescues at sea on the Greek island of Lesbos in uh, 2015 when the refugee crisis broke out. And uh, since then, over the past uh, six years, I'm involved in, uh, in, uh, I'm involved in search and rescue activities and uh, solidarity projects in response to the so-called refugee crisis at the borders of Europe, mainly in Italy and in Greece. Since March 2019, I am the rescue coordinator of the Italian association Mediterranea Saving Humans, which is not a typical NGO. It is more of a civil society platform, a network of different Italian anti-racist initiatives with the purpose of um, saving lives at sea and defending human rights. We have a rescue ship called Mare Ionio, which unfortunately is currently blocked in the port of Venice by the Italian authorities. But uh, when it's not, we are patrolling in the international waters off the Libyan coastline, searching for refugee boats in distress uh, with the objective to rescue the people, provide them with medical assistance, 
and transfer them to the nearest place of safety, which in our case is Italy. Apart from rescue activities, we are trying to address the lack of media coverage, witnesses and information from the sea borders of Europe. Monitoring and uh, reporting is of crucial importance since nowadays uh, human rights violations have become the norm in the central Mediterranean Sea, where more than 60% of the people on the move are abducted by the so-called Libyan Coast Guard and are returned to torture camps in Libya with the direct assistance of the European Union and its member states. Regarding us, uh, the most challenging issue that we face right now is the fact that our rescue ship is blocked. So we cannot resume our operations. In total, four civil rescue ships are currently impounded by the authorities under the pretext of uh, possessing technical irregularities. And policies such as this one are not new. Unfortunately, over the past 10 months, almost every civil rescue ship involved in activities in the Mediterranean Sea was confined to port for several months after exhausting technical inspections by the maritime authorities. The latest campaign of criminalizing sea rescue took place on the, on the, one month ago. On the 1st of March, we had a police raid in our offices and on board our ship. Uh, when they, where they confiscated laptops, cell phones, documents, in order for the prosecutor to gather evidence against, for a new case he just opened, according to which eight people of our organization are under investigation for the offenses of uh, facilitating illegal immigration. This is the standard accusation for every civil actor engaged in uh, sensor rescue activities. Two days later, on Wednesday, the 3rd of, Ma of March, the prosecutor of uh, another Italian city released the result of an older investigation that started three years ago, according to which 21 members of three different NGOs are accused of the same thing, facilitating the entry of illegal migrants. Unfortunately, in this case, the NGO members will go to trial. They are accused, they're not just under investigation like us. The prosecutor decided to lay charges against them. Among them, there are huge international NGOs, such as MSF, Doctors Without Borders, Save the Children, and one smaller NGO from Germany called Jugedrette. So we see that uh, criminalizing Syriasco is an ongoing process. As if all this was not enough, the same day, on the 3rd of March, another prosecutor, the prosecutor of Catania, decided to lay charges against three more members of MSF for uh, another case back in 2018 when the rescue ship Aquarius was still active. The crew is now accused of having spread toxic waste in Italian ports after the disembarkation of migrants. By toxic waste, they mean migrants' clothes, because we were placing the old clothes of the rescued people in normal plastic bin bags before unloading them in the ports. And they say that every migrant's clothes should be treated as hazardous waste. Of course, this is another racist element in, the, in their narrative. They constantly treat migrants as a threat to public health. By default, they consider their clothes dangerous waste, even if the person is perfectly healthy. Just to make it clear for, the, for those who listen to us to understand, it's a common practice during a search and rescue mission. As soon as the rescue is complete, uh, we bring the people on board and we provide them with new clothes and we throw the old ones. Prior to that, every rescued person gets medical attention. And if, of course, someone suffers from a communicable disease, we isolate them 
and we separate their clothes according to the medical protocols. This is a standard procedure followed by, by everyone. And we are talking about mass rescue operations. Within a day, we were likely to need to rescue more than 1,000 1, 1, people in distress. So we just see that they're using whatever means they have. Uh, this is just another pretext to hinder rescue activities and block our operations at sea. To close this uh, issue, um, it is important to point out that despite all these arrests, despite all these investigations, media campaigns against us, no rescuer has ever been convicted. In most cases, there's not even a trial. It's just the juridical investigation through which the persecutor usually decides to drop charges in lack of adequate evidence to support them. Nevertheless, the damage is done. Every time there is an open investigation against rescue NGOs, right-wing media are having a party. It's the best opportunity for them, for xenophobic voices, to unleash a barrage of attacks, fake news, and conspiracy theories about NGOs being the pull factor of illegal immigration, about uh, us cooperating with smugglers, we are traffickers, we want to Islamicize Europe, we take money from, I don't know who, George Soros, to flood the country with, with migrants, etc., etc. So there is a 100%. This, Operations are totally politically driven. There is a very important political motivation from European states to restrict the presence of uh, search and rescue NGOs in a way to block migration uh, at any cost. Thank you for laying that context out. Um, and so at the beginning, you mentioned that you're, you're, if your current ship was not uh, impounded, you would be out rescuing up to a thousand people. Is that per day? Um, back in 2017, we had to, it was often that we were called to rescue 1,000 people per day, yes. Now okay. it's less, now less people are trying to cross the central Mediterranean, but, but also it's important to stress what it means to leave the Mediterranean Sea without rescue ships, what it means to mean to leave the most lethal passage on the planet without adequate humanitarian response. Actually, the central Mediterranean, the sea between Sicily and Libya, is by far the deadliest sea crossing on the planet. Over the past five years, more than 15,000 people have lost their lives. Actually, the phrase crossing is misleading. It's a huge, vast area with hundreds of nautical miles of open sea. And uh, the distance they have to cross up to Italy, because most refugee boats start from Libya, they have to cross around 260 nautical miles. This is around 520 kilometers of open sea without any islands in between, without any lighthouses to guide them, only with one hand compass that they have and they try to head north. This is practically impossible. With the kind of boats that they travel, in fact, all of these people are sailing to their own death and their main chance of surviving is to be spotted by a ship. Most of the migrants that we rescue have been uh, kidnapped, tortured, or raped in Libya. And in every rescue, we, we find exhausted, starving, and injured people, including unaccompanied children and pregnant women. As you can understand, it's not only a matter of the geography that it's quite impossible for a boat to make it all the way, but also the people who are daring to cross this passage are in a very dire situation. In general, refugee boats are so fragile that our rescue operation is like a race against time. If we don't find the people early enough, it's highly possible that nobody will survive. And on several occasions, we learned about migrant boats that started from Libya and uh, disappeared in the middle of the journey. They were never seen again. 
sometimes they don't even count as a number in the statistic in the official figures because after a shipwreck of 100 people usually we find only five to ten dead bodies only this counts to the total number for the dead migrants at sea for the missing people we are doing an estimation based on the reports and the testimonies of the survivors it's not like the crossing between greece and turkey where the boats can travel all the way up to the greek islands greece and turkey is only 10 miles in italy is 260 miles so when the italian authorities are blocking a rescue ship in the port when they confiscate when they confiscate a rescue asset like my our ship like juventus or seawards 3 they are condemning hundreds of people to certain death it is a concrete direct consequence it is as accurate as it sounds. You mentioned at the beginning of this call that you, this recording, that your organization does get involved in other projects to shift perhaps the current realities that are leading people to one cross uh, in such uncertain regards. What are the other ways in which uh, your, an organization like yours or others are working to court human lives being, you know, taken and what are the types of policy projects or other ways you're intervening in this atrocity? Um, in our context, one of the top priorities is to give visibility to the, to the horrifying conditions in the Central Met and in Libya, because we operate in a context where we are alone in the middle of the sea, where there's no eyes, no witnesses, no media coverage, and all the first-hand information has to come out by us, ourselves. So, in a way, we are the voice of the migrants who are being deported in Libya, and their voice cannot reach out to Europe. The thing is that the people, I mean, as far as the refugees are concerned, the people are so relieved to escape the hell of Libya that they don't even think about the risks they're taking. And during each rescue, the first thing the migrants ask us as soon as they get on board is, where does the ship go? It's their first question. If it goes back to Libya, I prefer to jump. I prefer to die in the sea. Trigger warning related to, a small trigger warning related to violence and uh, ill treatment for the, for the next uh, one, two minutes. But it's important to, to mention that all the people that we rescue have scars on their body from, from torture. Every, almost everybody has been sold as slave. There is slavery of 16th century still in Libya. And almost every woman has been uh, sexually abused by many different men. Imagine that uh, I have stopped taking testimonies from people because it's uh, over the past three years, there's always the same uh, reports. Every person that we rescue has been uh, kidnapped by one of the thousands of different armed groups and militias because Libya, as we all know, over the past 10 years is under civil war. There is no central government and the country is divided into many parts. In the western part, where the majority of the migrants depart from, there are thousands of different armed groups and militias who kidnap all arriving migrants as soon as they enter Libya and put them in improvised prisons where they can stay for months. So detention in Libya, detention centers in Libya are slave houses. Any Libyan person can go inside this place and buy a human being. They can also get a paper as a receipt. There was a video from CNN three years ago showing one of these slave markets. But uh, apart from that, there's not so much coverage on this issue, even though it's, uh, for me, it's one of the most horrifying um, things happening right now in the, on the planet. Yes, yeah, so in, in 
just just a quick sort of question in regards to what you're saying because it's it's so important and and powerful right um what are other points in the system where things need to shift and need to change what else needs to happen at a more systemic level so that they can be helped out so european union not only does not say a word against these atrocities but in fact it is funding them and sees them as part of the European plan against immigration. According to the official records, most of the EU funding for the stabilization of Libya goes towards migration containment. On April 6, 10 days ago, Italy's new Prime Minister, Mario Draghi, chose Libya for his first official trip abroad and praised Tripoli's efforts in stemming refugee crossings to Europe. So we see that European states have signed a new agreement in their effort to reduce the number of arrivals by sea. Like the agreement they signed with Turkey, but not with a state like Turkey, but with private entities, with warlords and militias in Libya who kidnap and sell people on the streets. And we believe that this agreement doesn't get the attention it deserves from the international community and press. Compared with the EU-Turkey deal in 2016, even though this is way more devastating regarding the violation of human rights. As a starting point, we want the immediate the cancellation of the EU-Libya deal. Right now, the EU is actively returning tortured people back to their torturers. And this is exactly the reason why the EU is accused of crimes against humanity at the International Criminal Court in Hague. In May 2019, human rights lawyers issued a 200-page report to the ICC urging for the persecution of the EU. So the same EU that won the Nobel Prize in uh, 2012, now it is under investigation for committing crimes against humanity. There are so many long-standing factors that have led to this current situation. Are you able to imagine a reality in any length of time in which we would reconstitute our world to be one in which humans are able to move freely uh, in order to survive and to not just survive but, but thrive? Is that even something you're able to imagine at this point given the circumstances that you work in every day? I believe that the, the so-called refugee crisis and its social political aspects have uh, shaped deeply the world we live in. It has shaped deeply the, the rhetoric and the policies of the Western world in the last uh, 10, 20 years. Unfortunately, the far right, once marginalized, now they have planted themselves uh, firmly in the mainstream. And many of their narratives regarding multiculturalism, migrants, Muslims, the Muslim problem, as they call it, have been adopted by the ruling parties. We are living in an economic period of wild austerity and an ongoing recession long before COVID started. People are disappointed from the political system and uh, the notion and the politicians. Uh, so the notion of national security is, is gaining ground. Refugees are being dehumanized and this fact is shaping uh, the world we live in. In Italy, for example, we are facing 20 years in prison because we are saving people from drowning. So I believe that it's a necessity to stand up against these policies is a necessity to defend the idea that the enemy is not the refugee, the enemy is the way our countries treat refugees. I think it's more urgent than ever to cultivate the idea of a new type of public administration based on a strong denouncing of racism and discrimination of any kind.
Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Um, and in that sense, what would you consider would be a well-designed policy and how could our listeners support it, get involved, know about, about it a bit more? Yes. Um, I don't know if uh, in the U.S. you have this, this concept of the, um, of the open cities, as we call it, in uh, safe cities, safe ports as we call it in Europe, because um, this movement has achieved to include more than 100 cities and municipalities that are willing to receive refugees right now. So this could be an idea also in the US that some places are, um, they declare that we want to receive refugees. We want refugees, we want to live all together, uh, denounce uh, xenophobia and racism and um, welcome people. So this could be a starting point, I think. But for sure, it's crucial to establish this connection between land and offshore activities, or in the case of the USA, between uh, frontline support groups and uh, local local institutions or local administration. Yeah, I, I believe in the US, they're called sanctuary cities. Uh, if not, Erica, correct me, please. Yeah, you know, we, we have that movement as well. Um, and it, we face similar struggles, especially during the Trump administration with ICE still going into, uh, you know, at the time I lived in New York City where it was a sanctuary city and yet still ICE was able to go in and detain people. Um, so it is a question of authority. Um, I think what you're describing is a common one, which is local law may be more progressive in certain instances or, or generous and accepting and inclusive, but often there's um, it's usurped or it's overridden by um, state or national law. And so I think one of the bigger leverage points uh, is in, for example, in the U.S. is around state laws. So, you know, uh, and state legislation, which can um, hopefully lead to much more inclusive national legislation. Do you see that as a leverage point as well, sort of this more mid-tiered intervention that sort of reconciles how places in Europe might be willing to accept, but there's a, a EU policy along the southern border that's restricting that. And so how do we change that type of legislation that's becoming more entrenched? In these times where the, where the war against migrants, refugees is an ongoing reality, where solidarity is being criminalized, where rescue at sea is being criminalized, where the right to life is being criminalized, any action of uh, resistance against uh, these policies must continue. And it's crucial to continue. Whether you give a portion of food uh, or whether you rescue someone from the sea or you block a deportation or you advocate and provide legal support or you share the news and raise awareness, there are a million ways to help and to contribute. And uh, I believe that Solidarity with migrants and refugees is a matter that promotes every aspect of our society. It helps in the sense of developing social awareness and solidarity bonds, uh, mutual help, deconstructing racism and uprooting xenophobia. Also, I believe that um, a key element to connect effectively with refugees today is to see them not um, as permanent victims in need of charity or protection, but as agents of their own destiny. So regardless of the labels, whether they are refugees, economic migrants or asylum seekers, these people assert and defend the right to life. The essential link between migration and um, freedom is not new. 
Hola a todos y todas. En esta oportunidad estamos Silvana Jury y estoy con Marisol Ortega para hacerles el comentario, la síntesis sobre lo que fue la entrevista que acabamos de escuchar, que en realidad tiene un formato bastante particular en este caso porque es la unión de dos, eh, de entrevistas a dos personas y sus trabajos en particular, pero con ciertos hilos en común. Voy a comentarles un poquito. En primer lugar, en la entrevista original, escuchamos a Rhys Jones y en una conversación con Erika Dorn y Hilary Carey, eh, nuestras compañeras de doctorado. Hilary también es parte de nuestro programa, aunque no es parte del grupo del podcast. Y en segundo lugar, escuchamos una entrevista entre Erika también, con Sofía Bosch y también nuestra colega del doctorado y del podcast y la conversación con Jason Apostolopoulos. Vamos a comentarles un poquito quiénes son ellos y tratar de hacer una especie de tejido entre los temas que surgieron, quizás más para provocarles la curiosidad que para detallar todos los temas que tocaron, porque cada uno de sus trabajos es muy amplio y les recomendamos que los revisen en más profundidad, pero todos tienen que ver con eh, cuestiones de migración, de cuestiones de exclusión, de raza, de, de fronteras y de movimiento. Eh, entonces, en, es, en eso tiene mucho que ver con el trabajo de Erika y por eso ella estuvo en ambas entrevistas. Y bueno, vamos a, a comenzar a contarles un poquito más. Hola Silvana, así es. Mira, pues primero tenemos a Rhys Jones, quien es profesor y catedrático en el Departamento de Geografía y Medio Ambiente en la Universidad de Hawái, en Manoa. Y él, eh, una de las partes o de los aspectos que estuvo en conversación con Erika y con Hillary era acerca de su libro White Borders, eh, en el que él hace un vínculo entre las leyes de inmigración y estos aspectos eh, de nacionalización o del orgullo eh, nacional de Estados Unidos, eh, en el cual menciona pues que en el pasado antes de 1870 no había ninguna regla nacional de por quién podía migrar en los, en los Estados Unidos y su argumento principal que él establece en el libro es que la razón por la cual Estados Unidos tiene leyes de inmigración es para proteger la idea de el país o de esta nación como un país blanco. Entonces él habla pues de estos aspectos históricos, eh, de cómo se han hecho esfuerzos, ya sea para que eh, esta idea de eh, Estados Unidos como el país blanco se pueda, digamos, derrocar y cómo eh, los, el movimiento de, de derechos civiles en, en los 60 fue un gran parte de aguas para esto. Entonces, eso es una de las partes en las que él pues habla y ahonda en cuanto a su libro, pero haciendo este, este vínculo ¿no? entre las leyes de inmigración y este deseo por mantener a Estados Unidos como un país blanco. Y creo que ahí hay como una, un muy buen eh, lazo o puente a, a lo que nos está platicando por otro lado, ya son eh, Apostolopoulos, eh, que no sé si quieres hacer como una breve introducción de lo que él hace. Sí, en el caso de Jason, él eh, es parte de una organización que se llama Mediterránea y que trabajan en estar monitoreando el, bueno, el justamente mar Mediterráneo en relación al cruce de inmigrantes o de, de migrantes que quieren entrar a la Unión Europea, especialmente en, a través de barcos, ¿no? Hemos escuchado mucho en las noticias cómo eh, 
bueno, lo, los sucesos que se derivan de esto a veces son trágicos, donde eh, hay muchas personas que mueren en este proceso y donde las condiciones en las que llegan al otro lado, a tierra nuevamente, son nefastas. Y ahí son nos cuenta justamente como esto... Mediterránea es en realidad una suerte de plataforma en donde convergen muchas iniciativas y justamente al funcionar como plataforma permite que diferentes individuos u organizaciones puedan ayudar en, estas, en estos procesos de diferentes maneras. La razón por la que esto surge es que hay, existen leyes internacionales que protegen, eh, que que protegen a los migrantes y protegen ciertos derechos de los refugiados y demás. Sin embargo, algunas leyes nacionales, o bueno, en, el caso, en este caso de la Unión Europea, sí tienen otros, otros mecanismos de trancar estos procesos, justamente en, en la misma línea de lo que hablábamos antes, para preservar cierta idea de nacionalismo o preservar el territorio sin, sin el ingreso de, de otros inmigrantes de otras zonas, con otras formas de ver el mundo, de otras razas, en fin, etnias. Entonces, en ese sentido tiene mucho que ver. En el caso de, de Jason y de la plataforma mediterránea, justamente tratan de asegurar que esas leyes internacionales sí se cumplan y especialmente que se valore la vida y, y los derechos humanos, humanos básicos. Entonces, lo que sucede es que en este trabajo que ellos están haciendo, tienen una serie de barcos que están monitoreando lo que está sucediendo y rescatando a estos migrantes que están intentando cruzar y de los que se empiezan, o empezamos a conocer en parte por justamente los, los datos y comentarios que nos hace Jason, sobre los datos, los números, eh, las, las historias incluso de las personas que están intentando hacer este tipo de viaje, este escape, y las condiciones que tienen que resistir, e incluso la cantidad, lo, lo intenso de este flujo y algo que en realidad se sabe muy poco. Ahí quizás podemos volver a vincular un poco el trabajo de Riz con esta idea de, de bueno, en qué, en qué punto eh, estas leyes son, realmente aseguran el bienestar y la vida de las personas, en qué punto empiezan a, a limitarlo y a ponerlo en jaque de alguna forma, y cómo es necesario que desde diferentes espacios, que es un poco lo que surge de esta conversación, surjan iniciativas o individuos que estén tratando de cuestionar o de, bueno, mostrar lo que es la realidad de un montón de personas que muchas veces queda excluida y de la que no sabemos mucho. Así es, y uno de los argumentos que eh, Ruiz nos habla, pues, tiene, tiene bases históricas también, ¿no? Y dice que uno de los problemas que tenemos actualmente con este tipo de, de políticas o de leyes que se crean, ya sea en este contraste entre lo nacional y lo internacional, es que no estamos viendo a la historia de la humanidad en un lapso de tiempo más largo, que es uno de los pilares pues, de, de, de lo que nosotros pensamos también en diseño para las transiciones, y él explica de cómo los humanos pues eh, solamente muchos o, o, o constantemente nos enfocamos tal vez en la historia en los últimos 100 o 200 años, pero que en el caso de migración, en el caso de, le, de la existencia de las fronteras, pues no, no ha sido así, no siempre hemos vivido en naciones contra territorios, mapas y fronteras, que la historia de la humanidad es una historia de migración y que la historia de las naciones está ligada, por otro lado, o en contraste, a la historia de la esclavitud 
que también ahí se liga con lo que ya se está diciendo de que actualmente pues una de las cosas que ellos están tratando de dar visibilidad y que están confrontando es este aspecto en el que en Libia todavía existen mercados de esclavos y que es algo que una realidad que está en el 2021 que tal vez uno piensa que existió en el siglo XVI, ¿no? Pero todavía está aquí muy presente. Y eso es, también es otra, otra parte donde, donde se conectan este, estos, estos argumentos y estos relatos que nos hacen tanto Jason como, como Rhys. Y en el caso de Rhys, pues él está diciendo que cree mucho en este aspecto de, de fronteras abiertas, que tampoco le quiere restar legitimidad a un movimiento sobre otro, pero pues que sí se necesita terminar un poquito en esos aspectos como imposición de pasaportes, imposición de ciertas leyes, imposición de, de fronteras y muros, si nuestra naturaleza como humanos es una naturaleza o, o una o, o se rige por muchas veces prácticas de migración, ¿no? Exacto. En este sentido, algo interesante que surge de la charla con Jason es que él eh, nota que es posible eh, apoyar estos procesos, múltiples procesos y actuar eh, en muchos espacios, quizás en muchas escalas. En un momento eh, le preguntan qué tipo de acciones son posibles o potenciales, quizás tomando como una perspectiva desde el diseño. Y él, en definitiva, lo que nos dice es que, aunque no lo dice literalmente entre líneas, es que en realidad hay muchísimo potencial, porque de alguna forma lo que necesitamos es empezar a desarticular estas ideas tan, que están tan fuertes hoy en día, pero que, como decíamos, en realidad es una forma particular de ver y entender el mundo, de organizar nuestras vidas, y no necesariamente la única, y que entonces ahí hay una suerte de necesidad para resistir, que es lo que están haciendo muchas, muchos de estos grupos e iniciativas y especialmente los propios migrantes que están atravesando est estos tipos de experiencias al punto de dar la vida y de arriesgarla en condiciones eh, inhumanas para poder salir de situaciones eh, complejas de esclavitud, como decíamos, de ciertas dinámicas de poder, de abusos, que son justamente por vinculadas a intereses políticos o otro tipo de intereses. En este sentido, hay cambios que son necesarios hacer a todo nivel, desde cómo, cómo las personas y las, las diferentes sociedades percibimos a los migrantes, en este caso, en el caso europeo, como, como la sociedad, eh, la población de la Unión Europea los, los ve, los discursos que existen sobre nacionalismo, los cambios políticos que apoyan ciertas visiones o discursos en contraposición a otros, y también los cambios en las leyes, cómo se instrumentan, si se instrumentan correctamente, si las leyes nacionales pasan sobre las internacionales, o procesos eh, injustos, como en el caso que defienden ellos, en donde justamente ellos a nivel personal, por, por tener esta práctica que al final parece es una suerte de activismo, están constantemente amenazados con ser criminalizados y a veces eh, necesitan, como bueno, sucedió en el momento de la entrevista, detener sus su trabajo y su apoyo a estos procesos o tener, por ejemplo, el barco inactivo o los barcos inactivos por estas dinámicas. Entonces, en ese sentido, al menos el, el mensaje de esperanza es que eh, en realidad todos podemos eh, aportar y eh, también visibilizar y mostrar est estos procesos que a veces son, bueno, son dejados de lado de, de los medios convencionales y no sabemos lo que está sucediendo y 
que en el fondo tiene que ver con una idea que es bastante sencilla y que aparece justamente en, los dos, en las dos entrevistas y es que, bueno, la importancia del respeto por la vida, del respeto por los derechos humanos básicos eh, y por entender lo que significa ser humano en este planeta y que eso puede significar justamente muchas cosas, eh, reconocer esa, esa diversidad y actuar un poco acorde a ello, ¿no? Y ya para, para terminar, pues nos gustaría simplemente como afianzar o, o reforzar un poquito pues cuáles son como que los puntos en, que, en los que estas dos entrevistas se conectan. Como dijo muy bien Silvana ahorita, pues es este aspecto de visibilidad, ¿no? Eh, los dos, tanto Riz como Jason, se enfocan en visibilizar eh, todas estas cosas que pasan entre líneas, todos este, estos aspectos que se materializan por medio de leyes, por medio de fronteras o de hasta muros en sí. Entonces ellos también están tratando de hacer lo propio por medio de su, de su propia visibilización de las problemáticas y de su, de su labor. ¿no? El, el segundo punto pudiera ser pues, esta este importancia de la apertura de estar abiertos a otras formas de pensar, a otras formas de concebir nuestras realidades, aunque eh, toda la vida hayamos vivido de cierta manera, no quiere decir que no se pueda vivir de otra y que eso pueda beneficiar a, a un mayor cantidad de personas. Y por último, pues este aspecto entre considerar, aunado esto de la apertura, diferentes perspectivas y entender cuáles son como las percepciones de un mensaje, como el de, el de la importancia de la nación o del orgullo nacional, y cómo pudiera esto ser manejado de diferentes formas para diferentes fines. Y, a, o sea, conectado a esto, pues está este aspecto de las narrativas, de las historias que nos cuentan acerca de la historia, y cómo esto le da forma a normativas o a las leyes que existen actualmente, y que esto pues está definiendo pues quiénes somos en el presente y en el futuro. Y ya no sé si quieres agregar algo más, eh, Silvana, sino más como para cerrar. Sí, muy breve, quizás ese es un buen punto, creo que indirectamente, aunque no, no se toca en, en más explícito en las entrevistas, tiene que ver eh, con la identidad y cómo se van conformando estas identidades, pero también cómo, cómo es importante cuestionarlas, eh, porque aparte de esas identidades a veces son imaginarios, no son, es, es una verdad aceptada que no necesariamente es real y que, como decía muy bien Marisol, viene por una historia que es contada, eh, la historia de la historia que no necesariamente es cierta. Entonces, eso nos da el potencial, la oportunidad de transformarla, porque así como se pudo imaginar y dar forma a una, podemos eh, desarticularla, imaginar otra. Y ahí, bueno, está el potencial de este trabajo que podemos hacer y que, bueno, tiene mucho que ver con el trabajo que está haciendo Erika y por eso es que nos acercaba a estas dos entrevistas súper interesantes. Así que, bueno, como dije antes, les recomendamos que indaguen en más profundidad sobre estos eh, entrevistados porque tienen mucho eh, de lo que podemos aprender y lamentablemente los minutos que tenemos no nos da para entrar en detalles. Entonces, para los escuchas... Y las escuchas, nos vemos en el próximo episodio. Si tienen comentarios o sugerencias, quizás también para nuevos entrevistados, eh, las pueden dejar en los comentarios. Y nos vemos en el próximo episodio. Hasta la próxima. You are listening to the Design and Transition podcast, brought to you by Marisol Ortega, Sofia Bosch Gomez, Erica Dorn, 
Alex Polzin, Silvana Juli, Nandini Nair. With the support of the School of Design at Carnegie Mellon, the audio production was done by Kyle Levy. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to subscribe and follow us on Twitter and Instagram as we release new episodes. You can find us at D in Transition. We welcome direct messages about our new guest suggestions, ideas, and comments. Until the next episode.